Good morning. It is good to be with you again. A beautiful morning. We've already had the opportunity to just see some of the beautiful foliage I'm looking forward to more. Uh, and it's such a joy to come up and to see New Hampshire. I, I figured out, I believe, different times of year for different purposes. Of course, the lectureship most of all. But I think this is my 10th vis visit to the state. And it's just one of my favorite places to visit. And I want you to know that you are one of the reasons why. Uh, I always enjoy being with you because faithful brethren are to be treasured. And um, those relationships that can extend into eternity are beautiful. And we ought to uh, make the most of those while we're here uh, so that we can enjoy them even the more in God's presence. As we turn in our text here this morning to 2 Kings chapter 4, we find four miracles, or perhaps five, depending upon how you see things. And as we look and consider now the miracles of Elisha, I, I want us to think about what a miracle means to us and how it appeals to us. You know, miracles as a whole, they appeal to the senses. They are intended in that way to make an impression on you so that if you were there, it would have caused your eyes to get wide. It would have caused your ears to perk up to what was coming. You would have noticed something different. And I would think of all things that the hair on the back of your neck would have stood up when you saw what happened. But we sometimes don't appreciate that most of these happened in a fairly small setting, that the people who were involved were isolated in many ways. Well, it doesn't matter because the Holy Spirit recorded these and put them down in a set order for a particular purpose to capture our imagination. We don't have to have been there to have read about it and to appreciate what was done here. It ought to cause us to have this stirred up feeling of awe and wonder at what our God can do and why he would do these things. Because each one, when you see it, they are emphatic statements that God is at work through someone who is committed to God's work. And all of this is by design. But as much as miracles demonstrate the power of God, they say more than just that. And that's one of the things we're going to consider here. At this point in time, Elisha is in the process of being established as Elijah's successor. You remember in chapter 2 when Elijah had hit the water of the Jordan and Elisha followed him across and then Elisha did the same on the way back? that connection between them. And then you see then what happens in chapter 3 in, in terms of the nature of uh, a battle, and, and that is reminiscent of what Elijah had done before. Well, in the same way, if you remember Friday night, those of you who were here, and the lesson on the miracles of Elijah that Brother Glenn gave us, we have in some way some parallels to that here in the life of Elisha. And so they are not the same, but there are some very close similarities that we're just going to notice as we go. But what we find here in chapter 4 of 2 Kings 
as he's going to detail again these four miracles. We're going to find the miracle of the widow's oil, then the miracle of the raising of the Shunammite son, which is interesting because of how that son came to be as well. The miracle then of the pot of stew. That's it. I just love saying that. The miracle of a pot of stew. And then the miracle of the feeding of the 100. Okay. Those are what we are going to look at here today as we go through this chapter. One of the things that's interesting by the time you get here, though, is you've after you've left the early days of Elijah, many of Elijah's miracles were about judgment. And it certainly ended that way. And so when you come on here to Elisha at the early part of his ministry, reminiscent of Elijah's interaction with the widow of Zarephath in 1 Kings 17, I think all of these four share something in common important beyond simply the demonstration of God's power. Because all four of these, in, one, in different ways, show the nature of his care. Whether you're addressing the poverty of a widow, the loss of a mother or child, the problems experienced during a famine, well, what you have here is a combination of God's power at work to display compassion for his people. And I think that's an odd combination sometimes we don't think of power and compassion existing side by side. In human experience, we tend to separate those things. And yet, in the holiness of God, they live together in harmony. And the lessons we can learn from this, I think, are important for the development of ourselves as his people. So I want us to be practical about it now as we go through and consider each lesson. I want to begin as we look at this miracle of the widow's oil, which takes in the first seven verses of chapter 4. I want us to consider this. Show compassion through provision. Through provision. Let's read. A certain woman of the wives of the sons of the prophets cried out to Elisha, saying, Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that your servant feared the Lord, and the creditor is coming to take my two sons to be his slaves. So Elisha said to her, what shall I do for you? Tell me, what do you have in the house? And she said, your maidservant is nothing in the house but a jar of oil. Then he said, go, borrow vessels from everywhere, from all your neighbors, empty vessels. Do not gather just a few. And when you have come in, you shall shut the doors behind you and your sons. Then pour it into all those vessels and set aside the full ones. So she went from him and shut the door behind her and her sons, who brought the vessels to her, and she poured it out. Now it came to pass when the vessels were full that she said to her son, Bring me another vessel. And he said to her, There is not another vessel. So the oil ceased. Then she came and told the man of God, and he said, Go, sell the oil and pay your debt and you and your sons live on the rest. Isn't that just a simple thing? In such a simple way to take care of what was actually a, a human problem of the deepest degree. In James chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, James says that if a brother or a sister is destitute 
of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled. But you do not give them the things which are needed for the body. What does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. We often put James 2 in the context of salvation. And it, the principles apply. That activity matters. But we need to remember the context directly first was addressing having compassion. And actually letting that come out in your life. We can get so caught up in the individual spirit of America that we fail to develop the compassionate spirit of Christianity. Jesus went about doing good, Acts chapter 10, verse 38, and this is the way in which the motivation is characterized on more than one occasion. I'll give you just a couple. Matthew 9, verse 36. Matthew 14, verse 14. Different circumstances, but similar reaction. He was moved with compassion for them. People mattered. What happened to people mattered. What was going on in people's lives mattered. And Elisha shows us a little bit of how to react. And I want you to just look at the text. We're going to be noting it, but because of time, we'll move quickly. Listen for what others need, brethren. The woman is crying out. Here's the situation. Elisha listened. He didn't ignore. He didn't find something else to do. He listened because she mattered. I'm reminded in Matthew 20 of where Jesus is, is entering into Jerusalem, just about to, and they're, they're blind men crying out, have mercy on us, son of David. And there's this big crowd, and, and they're kind of quiet. You'll be all be quiet. And Jesus, Jesus hears them. Jesus is listening for the cries of people in need. And we need to be as well. But that requires something else. You notice in verse 2, we need to ask questions about what people need. Now, I think this is important when he tells her, he says, what shall I do for you? You're going to see that repeated later on in this chapter. Same question. What shall I do for you? Tell me, what do you have in your house? He's asking questions now because he's formulating, number one, how do you perceive your problem? And I'm then going to evaluate what I can do about your problem. But it begins by asking questions. When Jesus followed up with those blind men, he asked them, what do you want me to do for you? He says, give us back our sight. But there's a taken responsibility to understand your issues that's part of this. And then you see that followed in verses 3 through 6 here. And it's a really important part. He says, you need to involve them in the process. As much as can be done. It's interesting here of where he wants the widow and her sons to be part of the process. And trying to think of all the reasons why it carries out like this. Why does he not just, you know, here, hand you some money? Or here's some oil. He has them work their way through it. And because of that, do you know what he did? He involved the woman. He involved sons. He involved their neighbors in being part of this. And then they go out and they're taking it on to do something about their problem too that he's made possible. 
In Galatians chapter 6, verse 2, it says, bear you one another's burdens. In verse 5, of course, we balance that out with each man shall carry his own load. So there are responsibilities. There's some things that people can do for themselves, and there's some things people can't do for themselves. It is up to us to look at that situation and evaluate which one we have here. And to the degree people can do something for themselves, our instruction and involvement with them should be to get them to do for themselves. But when there are situations where there's nothing that they could do, there is then compassion of heart to care for them as we can. So what does that mean? It means even when we're showing compassion, we should expect effort from others. We should encourage then their interaction in the process and we should insist on focus. You go inside that house and you close the door and you do this. You know, someone, if they're really in need, they ought to be able to focus on their need. If they've got time to sit down, wait, and hope something else happens, they must not need as much as they think. There ought to be a focus to it. But in all of this, there's something else I want you to think about that comes in in verse 7. When he tells her to go and sell the oil and pay your debt, and you and your sons live on the rest, you know what? Through this process, the woman is in poverty. Her, her sons are going to be sold into slavery. This is the low point. Elisha has just restored her dignity. And part of what we should be doing in our approach to people is to honor people and value people when maybe they are so low on themselves they don't see their own value. As part of honor all, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 17, the word for honor has the idea of value attached to it. So, brethren, what I should think we should take from this is our benevolence should be driven by our compassion with the goal of, I've got four things here, relieving heavy burdens, two, showing people they have intrinsic value, three, changing someone's life for the better, and four, pointing them in the process toward God who provides all good things. And if we walk through our process and make sure our heart is focused, we can do that by the way and manner that we do something. Benevolence should never be about the check. Matter of fact, it rarely should be about a check. It needs to start with the heart and the means come based upon the situation based upon what accomplishes God's purpose. Providing help for someone else should never become an act of patronage to demonstrate what we possess. But rather, it should always be an act of love to remind someone of how God sees them and how they should see themselves. Number two, show compassion through mercy. This is the longer reading, and it's, it's such a powerful one. I mean, this is a sermon in itself when we happen to see this notable woman of Shunem. But I want us to consider it because of the mercy involved. The mercy she showed and the mercy Elisha showed. You know, in Matthew chapter 5 or 7, Jesus said, Blessed are the merciful, that they shall receive mercy. And we often think of mercy uh, to understand before I get into the text. We often think of mercy only in contrast with judgment. And that's not to appreciate fully what mercy is. After Jesus told the account, depends on what you want to think, story, history, parable of the Good Samaritan in Acts chapter 10. 
about the one who acted as a neighbor, the lawyer responded, remember, he asked the question, who was neighbor? Now he switched the question around to teach another lesson there. But the man responded, he who showed mercy on him. Right. Now, throughout Luke, actually, that idea of that concept of mercy is, is true, especially in the Sermon on the Plain in chapter 6. The essence of this idea is mercy is responding to a situation according to a person's need rather than according to what they might deserve. That's the essence of mercy. So let's consider how that plays out. It's the, the acting out ultimately of God's a characteristic and attribute of God, of his goodness applied to need. Now it happened one day that Elisha went to Shunem, where there was a notable woman, and she persuaded him to eat some food. So it was as often as he passed by, he would turn in there to eat some food. And she said to her husband, Look now, I know that this is a holy man of God who passes by us regularly. Please let us make a small upper room on the wall and let us put a bed for him there and a table and a chair and a lampstand so it shall be wherever he comes to us, he can turn in there. Oh, what a wonderful woman. What great heart and mercy. She had care. She saw a need. She said, we can do something about this need. More than one occasion. Okay. First of all, taking care of the meals, but wait a minute, he can have a place to stay too. We're going to take care of a need here. Just a wonderful heart. And it happened one day that he came there and he turned into the upper room and lay down there. Then he said to Ghazi, a servant, call this Shunammite woman. When he called her, she stood before him. He said to him, saying now to her, look, you have been concerned for us with all this care. What can I do for you? Do you want me to speak on your behalf to the king or to the commander of the army? She answered, I dwell among my own people. Nothing fancy for her. So he said, what then is to be done for her? And Gehazi answered, actually, she has no son, and her husband is old. So he said, call her. When he had called her, he stood in the doorway. She stood in the doorway, then he said, about this time next year, you shall embrace a son. And she said, no, my lord, man of God, do not lie to your manservant, your maidservant. But the woman conceived and bore a son when the appointed time had come, which Elisha had told her. Now, again, this again, what was all happening here to make this happen? It's obviously special. The prophet is at work, therefore God is at work. But let's continue. It had to have been a few years later for what happens in this. So we have, remember, a year later she's going to conceive and, and have a child. But then the child has to grow up to be able to speak to have what happens next. So we've got a few years. And the child grew. Now it happened one day that he went out to his father to the reapers. And he said to his father, my head, my head. So he said to a servant, carry him to his mother. When he had taken him and brought him to his mother, he sat on her knees till noon and then died. And she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God, shut the door upon him and went out. Now that itself is significant, friends. She put him where that but Elisha went, his room. Then she called to her husband and said, Please send me one of the young men and one of the donkeys that I may run to the man of God and come back. So he said, Where are you going to him today? It is neither the new moon nor the Sabbath. And she said, It is well. Now notice, he would not have been surprised for her to go to see the, him on the new moon or the Sabbath. She regularly did this. She says, It is well. That's faith. Don't you worry about it. Don't want you need to even think about this. 
Then she saddled a donkey and said to her servant, Drive and go forward. Do not slacken the pace for me unless I tell you. And so she departed and went to the man of God at Mount Carmel. So it was when the man of God saw her afar off that he said to his servant Gehazi, Look, the Shunammite woman, please run now to meet her and say to her, Is it well with you? Is it well with your husband? Is it well with the child? And she answered, It is well. Now, you might be scratching your head about now. Things are not well for the child. This is a woman on a mission, and there's only one person that can do what she needs done. And she knows it. This is faith. Now when she came to the man of God the hill, she caught him by the feet. But Gehazi came near to push her away. But the man of God said, let her alone. for Her soul is in deep distress. And the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. So she said, did I ask a son of my Lord? Did I not say, do not deceive me? And he said to Gehazi, get yourself ready and take my staff in your hand and be on your way. If you meet anyone, do not greet him. And if anyone greets you, do not answer him. But lay my staff on the face of the child. And the mother child said, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. So he arose and followed her. I want you to notice that Elisha met the urgency of the woman showed herself. He's meeting it by immediately and what he gives out. He takes this woman seriously. Gehazi went on ahead of them and laid the staff on the face of the child, but there was neither voice nor hearing. Therefore he went back to meet him and told him, saying, The child is not awakened. And Elisha came into the house. There was the child lying dead on the bed. There is no doubt the situation of the child. He went in, therefore, and shut the door behind the two of them and prayed to the Lord. And he went up and lay on the child and put his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, and hands on his hands, and he stretched himself out on the child, and the flesh of the child became warm. He returned and walked back and forth in the house, and again went up and stretched himself out on him. Then the child sneezed seven times. There are some people that seem to make a living of coming up with special things for why it was a sneeze seven times. It does not matter. It is a sign that the child lives. Dead people don't sneeze. Okay? It's, it's not that complicated. And the child opened his eyes. And he called Gehazi and said, call this Shunammite woman. So he called her, and when, he came, when she came to him, he said, pick up your son. So she went in, fell at his feet, bowed to the ground. Then she picked up her son and went out. Mission accomplished. Now, that is the longer reading, but I wanted to go through it because what a fantastic woman you do not want to overlook in Scripture met by the faith and action of a fantastic man of God. Whenever you see this, we must not simply become guardians of the truth in our community, but we must also show mercy and compassion in the process. You think about how Jesus, as he's closing the parable of the unforgiving servant, should you not also have compassion on your fellow servant? Just I, I had pity on you. That's the origin of how we need to think of others. Okay. We point people to their proper responsibilities toward God, but do not forget, we have God-given responsibilities to our fellow man, too. You see, we are here today to remember what God has done for us, what Jesus has done for us, and to appreciate and bow down. But the whole of Christianity is not worship. It involves service, too. And we need to make sure we are mindful of those in need. 
This is not some either-or proposition. God is just, he's just and he's merciful, and his people should be too. So show mercy by helping others in their daily needs. That's what she was doing in verses 8 through 10. James chapter 1 and verse 27. Pure religion undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction, and to keep himself unspotted from the world. We do these things. Help in the basic daily needs that people have when they're truly needs. But also, in what she did, show mercy by offering blessings and benefits that people otherwise would not enjoy. That's showing mercy too. In verses 11 through 17, on this, all this action she took to make it pro- possible for Elijah or Elisha to do his work. She made it easier on him. Oh, you just don't know. The people that will do kind things here and there just to make life easier for a preacher. It's special. Don't ever think that those things you do don't matter. I mean, small gifts, just showing thoughtfulness, the encouraging word, it means something. She took care of him to the degree she could. I see what the students get at the school, how people give for them, fill our pantry up, give clothes and ties to sometimes students who don't have the money to buy things. But also, in the larger picture of the miracle, show mercy by coming to people's aid when when and where they need you most. Obviously, none of us can do a miracle today. The best we can do is visit the hospital when someone is sick. But if we were to respond the way Elisha responds when we know there's a need in the congregation, and it's a real need, and we just, basically you realize he dropped everything, sent Gehazi out, and then followed with her. Nothing would do until this problem was resolved. And there are some situations where the situation is that severe, it deserves that kind of attention from us. Where our work as a congregation for that moment should be centered on helping this person. And we need to keep that in mind. In that process, we must stand up for God Stand against sin every step of the way. But we must also do so with a compassionate and merciful heart so that we do not allow our righteousness turn into self-righteousness. Our righteousness is to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. So let's make sure that we are taking God's word in its whole, not just the parts we want. Thirdly, show compassion through service. Verses 38 through 41. Here we finally reach the, the miracle of the pot of stew. And Elisha returned to Gilgal, and there was a famine in the land. Now the sons of the prophets were sitting before him, and he said to his servant, Put on the large pot and boil stew for the sons of the prophets. So one went out in the field to gather herbs and found a wild vine and gathered from it a lap full of wild gourds and came and sliced them into the pot of stew, though they did not know what they were. 
Then they served it to the men to eat. Now it happened as they were eating the stew that they cried out and said, Man of God, there is death in the pot. And they could not eat it. So he said, Then bring some flour. And he put it into the pot and said, Serve it to the people that they may eat. And there was nothing harmful in the pot. Once more, we've returned to a very simple problem with a method that is extremely simple. And yet, I guarantee you, if you've got bad stew, adding flour is not necessarily going to help it, naturally. right? This is not natural, but it's a natural method that was chosen. Now, I, I like this one because it, it, it makes me feel... Like, like you've got Elisha as the head of the, the director of the preaching school going back and, and helping out the students. Because that's in a sense what you have. Okay? In Galatians 5 verse 13, it says, just at the end of the verse, that through love serve one another. Okay? This is a simple thing to take care of. It's a meal. But the important part is that we've got a real problem going on here because food is scarce. And you know, I, right now, have you noticed, I'm sure you have, restaurants are hurting for help right now. They're having a hard time finding servers. Now, back home, that means that at my Sonic, they're having a hard time having a car prop to bring me my Diet Coke. This is a problem. <laughs> now, there are a lot of economic reasons for this. But it provides an interesting comparison when we realize how hard it, time it is to find servants for the service industry. And it reminds me of how hard it can be sometimes to find volunteers in the Lord's church to serve in some very basic ways because we're in the service industry too. And we need to do this remember some basic practical points now. Serve with compassion wherever you are needed. He returned to Gilgal. He has been off and he's traveling around. He's coming back to the headquarters, if you will. This is a long journey when you consider all the area he was covering in this. We're talking about Israel really from top to bottom. He traveled. He's now at the, at the southern end, we think. Wherever you're needed. He comes down and in Acts 8 and verse 4, the, the key element of this, we think about evangelism, and that's the major idea here. That whenever we're preaching the word, it didn't matter where you are. You have responsibilities, and you need to take them. But then he says, you need to serve with compassion in, in whatever way is needed. Now, you look at what's going on here, and the simple thing, now for me it's simple, because he said to his servant, put on the large pot and boil stew for the sons of the prophets. Can you imagine a prophet of God, for just a second, the mighty Elisha, saying, get dinner ready. Isn't that what he was doing? It was the attention to those small things that matter in life. It was not something that was beneath him. It was not someone else should already do it. It was... Let's do this. In John 13, Jesus is with his disciples. They've been walking. And Jesus stops to wash their feet. The lowly job. You take care of needs. You do what's needed. 
You show compassion and care. They're hungry. They need to eat. There's also something, though, I want you to see that we have a problem, of course, with this food. Now, my wife suggested to me that what they did is they, they got some bad mushrooms. That's, that's what she thinks. Bad mushrooms. Some of y'all are thinking, isn't that every mushroom? <laughs> but she, something is in there that it's, now, you get something poisonous, right? You get the wrong thing. It's deadly. It's serious. Now, what I want you to notice here, the end of verse 39, though they did not know what they were, not every bad, even horrible situation deserves a witch hunt to find out who's to blame. Because sometimes people make innocent mistakes. And innocent mistakes deserve compassion. You know, my mom and I, the first night we stayed, and there's a young man there, and he put something in the microwave, in a wrapper. And I don't know how old he is, I don't know what all he was doing, what's going on in his life. But he put it in the microwave, turned it on, and went away. Well, wasn't that long, and um, a short story is the fire department arrived. And before they even got there, though, the person at the, of the hotel comes in. He just wants to know who did this. Who did this? I want to know who did this. Sometimes things are mistakes. And we shouldn't just decide somebody is being hateful or harmful on purpose because something didn't go well. We didn't like the outcome. And we need to have the compassion to care for people even in their ignorance. You know, the Israelites complaining to Moses practically from the beginning, this is, this is an ignorant group of people we sometimes forget. The man who gathered wild gores didn't look for something deadly. That was an honest mistake. And we need to make sure that Sometimes just showing that compassion is one of the greatest services we can do. Help solve the problems instead of trying to find the blame. We'll have to find some blame for some stuff sometimes. I understand that. But let's be problem solvers. Let's try to do something that helps. Because you know what? Even if you find the person who found the wrong things, that put the gourds that were bad into the stew, you know what you still have? You have bad stew. And you still have nothing to eat. And in the church sometimes we're really good at finding the blame for somebody and never getting the job done. So let's make sure to take a practical approach to this and realizing in the, in the, you're looking at in the home and the apostasy we have going on in the church, problems of misunderstanding or just in life. Let's approach it the right way and solve problems for people. Sometimes you can just begin by taking steps to make what we do more and more about God and others and less and less about ourselves. And when we do that, we will have taken a major step forward toward being like our Savior. Finally, this is 42 through 44. Show compassion through priority. Then a man came from Baal Shalisha 
and brought the man of God bread, the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley bread and newly ripened grain in his knapsack. And he said, give it to the people that they may eat. But his servant said, what? Shall I set this before 100 men? He said again, give it to the people that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left over. So he set it before them and they ate and had some left over according to the word of the Lord. As we've gone through these, have you noticed how these foreshadow Jesus? Not unintentional. Show compassion through priority. In Romans chapter 12 and verse 10, we're told to be kindly affectionate one to another with brotherly love, in honor preferring one another. You know, when, when this man came from uh, Baal Shalisha, think about that name. You've got named after Lord, right? Baal, Baal. He brought bread of first fruits. He was likely, why would he do that? He was likely doing his best to follow the law, though living in the ungodly northern kingdom. He's not going to take them to, before the calves of Dan and Bethel. He's faithful. But here's a man of God. You give your first fruits. So he brings them to him. Elisha would have been recognized as prophet of God, leader of the school of the prophets, and maybe then a substitute in a sense for the temple and the priest. But what that means is this was Elisha's bread and grain to do with as he pleased. Here you go. And he chose to give it to others. Here's what I have. Again, famine. He chose to give it away. We live in an entitlement society. That doesn't mean he didn't eat ultimately, but not first. We live in an entitlement society where everyone seems intent on getting noticed first, paid first, and taken care of first. You see it in sports, certainly. You probably see it down where you work, too. But that kind of selfishness leaves no room for other and therefore no room for compassion. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but let each esteem others better than himself. It means to hold up above. You know how they used to, and I don't know they've done this in years, they used to take a coach at the end of a game or sometimes a player and hoist them on their shoulders, and that player or coach was above everybody where the, the spotlight was on that person. Hold others up above yourself. Let others get the spotlight and value them. We ought to treat others with priority. That's verse 42. They deserve our attention first. Luke 9, verse 23. Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. As you would that men should do unto you, do ye even also unto them, and so fulfill the law and the prophets. Don't be like that person at the wedding feast Jesus talks about in Luke 14, who's going to go walking up, strutting up, and saying, well, I'm the most important person here. This is, everyone ought to be... Come down, see me. You step back and realize you know, it's a whole lot better to be invited up than to say, move to the back of the line. Need a little bit more of that. It's also about doing what you can for others, even when it seems like you could never do enough. When you, you think about this problem that's presented, the first part of verse 43, 
What? Shall I set this before 100 men? We can't possibly do enough. It, guess what? If, if this would feed five people, wouldn't that be nice? Are we just not going to feed the five? We think that if we can't do the big things in the church, then we just won't do anything. Little things add up. Little things add up. I think about the woman. Jesus says, one of my beautiful phrases, I already mentioned what, but Mark 14 verse 8, she hath done what she could. Do what you can, brethren. Don't be worried about what you can't do. You do what you can do. When others doubt, you act from faith. Elisha's not worried about it. No, you go do this. Others were doubting around him. Make God your reference for what you should do instead of what others think should be done. God's the reference point. Not others' failing faith. When we give others priority, they will be blessed by our doing so. And so will we. Acts chapter 20, verse 35. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Philippians 2, verse 4, right after the verse we mentioned earlier, he says, look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. When we typically think of miracles, we envision, I think, at least I do, the parting of the Red Sea. That's majestic, isn't it? And I've got to tell you, what Charlton Heston did, that doesn't cut it. It was, no, really, it was much bigger than that, I guarantee you. The sun standing still for Joshua. Fire being called down from heaven. Or Lazarus after three days being raised from the dead. We do not often think of multiplying oil, restoring his son by stretching out on top of him, fixing a bad stew, or feeding a hundred people. These are all overshadowed. But we ought to. Because the miracles of, of Elisha remind us not only of the power of miracles, but also of the importance of compassion toward our fellow men. They may seem small in comparison to other miracles, but I assure you they were very large in the lives of those who were affected by them. And that simple realization should guide us in delivering compassion to others too. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, Peter said, Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Love as brothers, be tender-hearted, be courteous. Now, while we cannot do miracles today, we can always show compassion. We can always provide something for those who are in need. We can always show mercy in response to people's needs, either physical or spiritual. We can always serve one another with humility and purpose. And we can always give others priority so that they know they matter. There will be any number of circumstances where you feel entirely helpless. The loss of a loved one. A cancer diagnosis. Losing a job. A family broken apart. And in most of these situations, there is indeed little that you can do. And it's hard when you realize you can't help. But brethren, you can always pray. 
always care. And I think we could use a lot more of that in the Lord's church.